Good morning. The squirrel, you know, squirrel running by in me was, I'm wearing the exact same shoes as the guy running in that video, so. Hey, I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad that we're gonna have the opportunity to be in God's word today. A couple of housekeeping things, restrooms are through that door. More importantly, this is an opportunity for us to get to know Jesus better as we study this text, as we look at this text. And so if you are the type who likes to make noise and say amen, feel free to do that, okay? And if you have a child in here and that child is making noise, I'm gonna assume that's an amen as well, all right? Let's go. Thank you. We're continuing the book of Acts as we've made it to Acts 18, which is pretty good because we assume we're going to finish this letter before the summer. We're familiar uh, with where Paul is now visiting in Corinth. Corinth is where Paul writes two letters to the church known as both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or if you're British, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We're familiar with Corinth as Paul writes these letters, and last week we studied as Paul was in a place called Athens, Greece, which was considered the thinking and philosophy capital of the world, and now he's in Corinth, which is more about sensuality and pleasure. These are two passages in two different places that really highlight the main two objections to following Jesus, intellectual pride and sensual lust. These two things tend to be reasons why many don't ever bow a knee to Jesus. Last week, we studied the Stoics and the Epicureans, people who believed that their truth was the truth, while Paul came and quoted poets of their day and bridged their beliefs to Christ and what he had accomplished. So I want to give you my outline up front. Some of us like to take notes. Some of us like to kind of know where we're headed. And so I'm going to give that to you this week. I don't do it every week, but this week it's going to give you the, hot, the outline up front, and then we're going to unpack it. Here it is. God in this passage will use companionship, fellowship, and hardship to show off his lordship. God is going to use companionship, fellowship, and hardship to show off Jesus's lordship. You got it? Get it? Let's go. All right. Verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Paul has now left Athens and gone to Corinth the largest city in Greece, and he will spend the second longest amount of time at any church that we know of in the church of Corinth, where for 18 months he will proclaim Christ. Corinth's reputation for debauchery dates back hundreds of years before Jesus was born to Mary. So much so that the old adage was to live like a Corinthian meant to act like a prostitute or a drunkard. And the first thing God does for Paul in this text, is he brings him companionship. Paul gets to Corinth and is introduced to Aquila and Priscilla, who at least Aquila, we know, was a Jew from what we can tell, and they already had become Christians, probably, in Rome, and had been thrown out of the area because of all the infighting between the Jews and the Jews who had become Christians. Part of why that is assumed is that Luke does not document, as we're reading in the book of Acts, that there was a conversion of Aquila and Priscilla after meeting Paul, nor is their baptism ever mentioned. Priscilla and Aquila are an interesting couple because throughout the book of Acts, they're talked about, but unlike most couples, Priscilla, the wife, is usually named first. 
This could be understood for a couple of different reasons. It could be because of social economic reasons. It could be understood because of her prominence within, among other Christians in the church, or it might have been both. They both were tent makers. And so Paul joined them in their work to not be a burden among others while he preached the gospel. And maybe, possibly, not to be questioned about his motivations for the proclamation of the good news that he was doing. The word that is used for tent maker, it means leather worker. And he and this couple all shared specifically in this trade. Verse 4. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, to testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul then did, which was his custom that we read throughout Acts, as Paul would go into a city, what does he do? The first thing he does, he goes into a synagogue and he reasons with the Jews and, and the Greeks. And we hear Luke pointing out this in almost every city because he would begin here to reason with them, and he did it every Sabbath, which means he did it every Saturday. So what was he doing the other days of the week? Probably tent making, or leather making specifically. So then, God is going to provide fellowship. God is going to provide fellowship. So again, he begins with companionship. Now he has fellowship, which in a way is already what he had with Priscilla and Aquila, if they're believers, assuming they are. But here God also sends Timothy and Silas. When we talk about fellowship, I think a lot of us kind of see fellowship as where two or more are gathered kind of thing. And the thing about fellowship is, it's not so much a Christianized hanging out. Like, I assume I'm going to hang out with some believers today, and we're going to cheer for the Niners to beat down the Cowboys, right? Yes. But that ain't, ha, but that ain't fellowship. Just because we're believers, fellowship translates to partnership around the gospel. Around the gospel. And for Timothy and Silas, they were partners of Paul to spread the good news of the gospel. When Timothy and Silas came from Macedonia, which is where Philippi was located, they brought a financial gift from the church. This is what is assumed that made it so Paul could then exclusively focus on preaching the gospel and testifying that Jesus was the Messiah, which provided more time and effort and focus specifically on this message to tell people consistently Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, this is a passage that I remember reading many years back, maybe not as much in context as we're reading it today. I had been doing insurance. I had sold insurance for farmers, da, 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 that thing. And, and I had worked at a few other brokerages as well. And I had done somewhat well for myself in my early 20s and my mid-20s, even by Bay Area standards. Over time, I had built up a pretty large clientele that created the opportunity for me to spend more time in service of those clients rather than just knocking on doors trying to get new clients. But in this time, I had begun to proclaim. I would testify, I would share my story with people, I'd tell people about Jesus, and I would study the scriptures with people all around the South Bay area. It was freeing to be able to talk about Jesus without having the pressure of a ministry job to be what was expected of me. But not only that, I remember people being surprised to hear that I wasn't doing ministry as my profession. No, I'm an insurance agent. And it wasn't my job to tell others about Jesus, at least vocationally. I just did it because God had shown me grace, and this was my application to obey him, which was to tell others about him. 
I took commissions like Matthew 28 pretty seriously. You guys are familiar with it, but I haven't read it in a few months. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always till the very end of the age. I took this seriously. Because like many of us that are serious about knowing the Son and want to grow in our understanding of grace, let's be honest, if we are a Christian, we generally want to do something, right? So when Robin's like, hey, could people help set up? People are like, yeah, I'd love to go help set up. Later on, we're going to be like, hey, can you help us tear down? And people are going to be like, yeah, I'd love to help tear down. Why? Because we want to know what to do. We want to know what to do. We want to put our efforts and focus on something probably that's greater than ourselves that is bigger than us. And so telling others about the one who provided grace to me, that wasn't hard for me to do. I was basically compelled to do so, pun intended for those of you who get that. Now I proclaimed the gospel on the side, if you will, until I couldn't do it on the side anymore. My heart, my mind was so focused on telling others about Jesus that my day job became less and less of my focus. Now. I don't recommend this for everyone. I'm not up here to tell all of you, you all should become pastors or evangelists or teachers in a Christian context. I do think though, some are called to do this. I've spent a lot of time with many who were called and I've spent a lot of time with many who probably weren't called, but wanted to be. So how can you tell the difference if someone is called into ministry or maybe they're not? I don't know the exact science, but I'd say fruitfulness is a good marker. Now, I look back on that time, and I don't know that my responsibility of being the insurance agency owner that I had, I was doing as good a job with it as I should have, but I began to be compensated when I would travel and speak in different places, and people began to support the work that I was doing. So much so that I began to feed however many kids I currently have and support my family with the time of ministry that I was doing. Now, it always, or it hasn't always been easy, There have been times, I'm going to be real about this, we've been totally check to check. We've been in places where we've needed help and care and grace, and God through his people has always supplied what we needed. It requires dependence, and honestly, it requires a sense of humility to put yourself in a place where God has to show up and fulfill his promises, but he has, and he does, and he will. This month, I've been the pastor here at Church of the Valley for five years and six months. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Before that, I worked at three different churches full-time. They're not applauding. And a couple part-time. And I was a speaker and missionary for five years as I would travel and speak. And God has never, ever let us go hungry. He has never let us sleep without a roof over our head unless we were camping. And he has provided what we have needed each and every day. But like I say to everyone who begins to do ministry as a profession... If you're called into ministry, check ID. Make sure it's from God. I've known a lot of professional pastors. They went to school for ministry. They got a job in ministry. They do it for ministry. But not so much a calling from the Lord. Now Paul is going to spend 18 months in Corinth. And as we're about to read, it got pretty hard. But as my outline suggested at the beginning, God is going to use hardships for a purpose. God is going to use hardships for a purpose. Here's what it says, Acts 18, 6. But when they opposed Paul 
and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Wow. Well, that's helpful because I'm a Gentile. Paul preaching the good news about Jesus, not only was he opposed by some Jews, they became abusive, meaning that they had fits of anger because they disagreed with what Paul was teaching. And Paul's response, <laughs> he shook the dirt. This is like the most offensive thing you could do in a synagogue. In my, I mean, this is, all right, that's what this is, all right? And if you haven't watched Friends, I'm sorry. I don't know your experience, but this isn't usually what happens when I've shared the good news of Jesus. People haven't become abusive. They've disagreed. They've scoffed. They've sneered. I've had people uh, uh, argue, maybe even get annoyed by what I was saying, but become abusive? No. Even if someone experiences this, I was struck by this quote by Charles Spurgeon this week. Conflicts bring experience. And experience brings that growth in grace which is not to be attained by any other means. Paul's boldness in the synagogue, a Pharisee who had the right to speak in the synagogues, explaining what the scriptures meant, had abuse heaped upon him. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Corinth, and here's what he says at the beginning of it, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, the Jews were for a Messiah. Their scriptures taught about the Messiah who would come, but they were not for the one that they did not recognize and ended up hanging on a cross. To admit and believe that this was the Messiah that actually came for them would be far too much for many of their prides to take. And so it became a motivation for them to attempt to harm Paul for opening his mouth about opening the scriptures. I was once called into a meeting where a few angry attenders wanted to argue with me and some of the changes that had taken place. They didn't like that I was continuing to preach the gospel each week, that I would testify to a change in my own life. And when asked about the gospel, they became something that absolutely, this enraged some of them. The gospel is a stumbling block for many, even inside the church. To believe in the gospel means that you disown other beliefs. And some refuse to do so because they don't want to give up that pride. Verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house. I'm going to call him Titus. <laughs> Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. It is said that he went next door. Some of the commentaries I read, they said that this was a shared wall, okay? Fine, you don't want to hear this? I'm leaving then. I mean, that's what he did. He literally went to the other side of the wall for the synagogue, who presumably, to Titus Justice's house, who presumably was a Greek. But Paul saying he'll stop going to the Jews and only go to the Gentiles really just meant within Corinth because he continues to go to the synagogues in other cities like Ephesus when he visits. But I think it's kind of funny because it's like breaking up with someone on a car ride and then being like, well, we're done. Can you change the radio station? That's what this is like. And look what, what Jew, through the proclaiming of the gospel in the synagogue, actually ended up believing. It says, verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household 
believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Crispus, it's a good name if anyone's looking for a boy name. Crispus and his household, a Jew, the leader of the synagogue, became a follower of Jesus and many other Corinthians. Remember what it was like to live as a Corinthian. They began to follow Jesus. There are four instances in the scripture accounts where we see entire households come to faith. We have Lydia's household in the beginning of Acts 16. We studied that a while back. We have the Philippian jailer and his household towards the end of chapter 16. We studied that. Now there is Crispus and his whole family here in chapter 18 of Acts. And towards the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we read about the family of Stephanus and his household that all believed. That might seem like a lot, but in comparison to how many people became Christians in the early church as the gospel spread through the Middle East and Greece and Europe and beyond, four households doesn't seem like the majority, you know? And while I'm sure there were others, there were only four households that were mentioned where everybody believed almost at once. Why am I pointing this out? Because I believe that most of us want our entire households to know Jesus personally and intimately and experientially. Experientially. Am I, I'm not the only one, right? Okay. Because you want to know how I know this? Because I hear this and I've, I hear the prayer requests and I spend time with many of you and I have counseled some of you and I've cried with some of you because of the reality that just because one person or a few people believe in a household, it does not guarantee that everyone in the household will believe. I don't know the formula. It doesn't give us one because I really don't think there is a formula. Yet at the same time, those who grew up in households with Christians in the household are exposed to the gospel, hopefully, more than if they didn't have believers that loved them that close to them inside their houses. I grew up in an irreligious home, and here I am, alongside my wife in a Christian home. But just because we have been committed to raise our children in a household that prays and depends on Christ for our salvation, and we are a ministry home, which essentially means we rely on Christ financially in ways that are just a little bit more obvious than others. We honor God with our lives. We honor God by prayer. We honor God by dependence, by being a family that attends church together, by being a family that isn't afraid to talk about or even argue about faith. If you've never had dinner with us, come, it's fun. When we read in Proverbs 22, it says this, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. We read that sometimes as a formula. As long as we do this, then this will happen. But the Proverbs are teachings on wisdom. And what is being explained is that if you raise your children, you train them in the ways of God, they have the opportunity to hear and know God from an early age. And in his grace, he might draw them to follow him many days of their lives. But with that, I think we all tend to be impatient with God. Can we just be real about this? regarding how our family should believe and be passionate and be focused on the gospel and we get angry at God or we get angry at ourselves or we get angry at our church or anything else that will make us feel more justified that God isn't doing what we want him to do right when we want him to do it. 
But as I quoted last week, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. God's patience with us, church, God's patience with our family is part of his work in drawing people to himself. It's not guaranteed. There's significantly more hope that is available to us than perhaps we live in because we forget about God's patience. I know for me, my motivations, like I just feel like I'm just going to confess a ton of sin today. So you're welcome. You can have here a ton of sin and you can have a side of pulled pork. My motivations at one point were pretty off when it came to this. For years, I would travel and speak and meet with people all day, every day. Aaron would be like, where are you? And I'd be like, I'm talking to someone at Pete's who I met on the street, and now we're talking about getting baptized in a fountain. That didn't actually happen, but you know what I mean. That's what it was like. And I was just trying to tell anyone and everyone who would listen about Jesus, and the deal that I made in my mind was this. Lord, if I serve you this way, you will then save my entire household. But you know what's wrong with that? A lot. But not only does God not have to do anything I want, my motivations for serving him were just like a Pharisee. It wasn't until God rebuked me. You know when he rebuked me? During the pandemic, uh-huh. When I was locked in my house with my family, that I realized that my influence in my household is important. And I can't just assume things. I need to be personally involved and intentional and caring and available. So if you are in a place where you are frustrated with God because he hasn't done what you want him to do when it comes to your family members or friends, I have an encouragement for you. First off, I'll quote Ice Cube, check yourself, okay? Second, repent and realize that God loves your children, your spouse, your family members, your friends even more than you do. And you get to be a faithful example and a prayer warrior for the kingdom of God on their behalf. Okay, back to Acts 18. You're like, why are you preaching at me? Well, because you came. <laughs> Between the synagogue leader, his household, and many Corinthian believing, this had made a pretty big difference in the city. Paul probably feeling pretty beat up spiritually, probably pretty beat up emotionally, then has a vision from the Lord. Verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Paul, the boldest of the bold, if you've read other parts of Acts, if you're familiar with Paul, the boldest of the bold, we tend to see him as someone who is just so excited about all things and if, about Jesus, and if you mess with him, he'll just tell you how you need more Jesus. He was beaten up. He was afraid. He was lacking courage. We know this because Paul actually writes to the church in Corinth about what he was feeling when he first arrived. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, as so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved, this is well known, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse two is well known. Here's verse three. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Paul trembling? 
shaking in fear? This is not a picture I get when I think of Paul. Do you? And yet, that is where he is at after being ran out of town after town for proclaiming the gospel. He was beaten, he was arrested, he was stoned, he was left for dead, and here you have another opposition that triggered Paul. So Jesus comes to Paul and says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. But he adds to Paul, no one will harm you or attack you because I have many people in this city. So Paul, through companionship, through fellowship, and even hardship, experienced Jesus's lordship as he speaks to him and promises him that he will not be harmed. When the Lord says this to Paul, church, I'm sure that Paul was assured because Jesus always keeps his promises. Now, what can you and I take from this? Because we're not Paul. Are we apostles? No. But should we be silent? No. And even though Jesus is with us, if we are found in Christ and his spirit resides in us, if we have committed to Jesus Christ, is it guaranteed that any or all of us will not be harmed if we stand up for Christ? No. But like we have said before, I think being persecuted or opposed like Paul was experiencing is much fewer and farther between for us today than we realize. And so the possibility of God opening the eyes and ears of people to hear the gospel and understand it and to turn to Jesus, that possibility and that reward far outweighs the slight possibility and fear that we will be attacked for sharing what we believe. Verse 11, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So Paul stays there for a year and a half Talk about obedience. This wasn't a quick pep talk for Paul that got him through another day. This was a conviction for Paul because it was a promise from God in a vision, and he continued to preach and teach the word of God in Corinth for a year and a half, the second longest time that Paul stayed in any church other than Ephesus, which we will study next. Verse 12. I'm going to go with Gallio. I think the way you said it was right, but I can't remember how you said it. So, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, The Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways that is contrary to the law. Oh, this entire passage just blew my mind this week. This opposition that Paul was dealing with, this united attack upon Paul is what Luke writes brought them to the pro-council. This was a governmental authority who they believed they could get to punish Paul. When these enemies of the gospel brought this accusation against Paul, they said he was attempting to get people to worship contrary to the law. Now, there are arguments and implications here, and there's two possibilities, and both, I'm not sure which one's right. I, I think I like the latter a little bit more than the former. But many read this to mean that Paul was attempting to get people to worship by grace rather than through the law, which is to mean that he said you mustn't keep the law to be saved. They must just receive grace through faith. And that's true, but I'm not convinced that's what they were accusing Paul of, especially to the proconsul. 
If they didn't mean against the Jewish law, they probably meant against the Roman law, which was to not begin a new religion. These Jews were accusing Paul of making up a new religion. Bagalio, a very well-written-about public figure in this time period, was known as a very just and impartial leader. And this is one of the things I love about the Bible. This also dates when Paul was in Corinth. It was around 50 to 52 AD. You know why? Because that's when Gallio was the proconsul according to Roman history. So what is Gallio's response? Verse 14. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. What a baller. Truly, this guy is so much more significant to the furthering of the gospel than any of us probably realize. You know why? Do you see his response? Gallio, a Roman judge, a proconsul, having accusations brought to him about Paul. Paul was about to defend himself. And Gallio goes, ha, 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 hush, little baby, don't say a word. And then he refutes the Jews' accusations by saying that he does not want to get involved in what he would consider family matters. Urkel reference right here. Why is that significant? Because Gallio was an authority for the Roman government. And by looping Paul's argument for Christ under Judaism, it meant that Christianity was now also under the umbrella of Judaism, a religion that was accepted to be practiced by the Romans. This was huge! And going forward for the gospel in its spread in Europe and in Rome was because Rome was ruling much of the world at this point. And so this way of thinking about the apostles' message provided open doors in ways that was unheard of up until this point. As a Christian, we see Christ as the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Let me quote Jesus and what he says in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So not doing away with what was taught in Judaism as a Christian, but an interpretation that all that was written there was to point us and foreshadow to the Messiah who is Jesus. But for the Jews in the first century and for the practicing Jews today, they're still waiting for the Messiah, refusing to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is and that he died, that he was raised to life and he currently sits at the right hand of the Father. And now Gallio has ruled that Christianity is a protected religion under Roman rule like Judaism and that Christians are innocent of breaking Roman law by teaching this belief in Jesus, which all of this brings a level of protection for Christians in the future that we will read about. God has used companionship, fellowship, and hardship to show Paul his lordship. And the Lord and his lordship even has jurisdiction over rulers and authorities. And I know I know when I hear that, I have an expectation that those that are in authority that are for God are going to understand and proclaim the gospel. Good luck. 
But that isn't always the case. In fact, that's rarely ever the case. God and his lordship can even use sinners and people placed in power who are selfish and evil and self-reliant. You know why? Because he is God and they are not. And we are not. Romans 13.1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities exist, have been established by God. Okay, if I haven't preached at you yet, here we go. Just get ready. I know how that reads. I know how we tend to want to interpret it as if God is a political party. <clears throat> no. That God's rooting for whatever, whoever is in office and part of their campaign. No. What Paul writes to the church in Rome is that we can understand today that through God flexing his lordship in Corinth is that he is the ultimate authority. And he will use people in office for his will in spite of their sinful agendas. So our actions about how we submit to authorities is a reflection of how we submit to God. Sorry. Get mad at God. He wrote it. If we choose to excuse our own actions because we don't agree with the laws or the politicians that have set them, and we discount anyone and everyone who abides by them, then we will and do, and we will end up doing the exact same thing with God and what He tells us to do when we're supposed to be obedient. See, we're supposed to be obedient not because we like it, but because we love Jesus. And we know and trust and believe that He knows what He is doing in the long run. I'm not talking about on Tuesdays only, in the long run, even better than any governing authority could ever know. So the question for a Christian is not if the authority is right or wrong. It is about if we're willing to submit by humbling ourselves and placing ourselves under an authority that God has allowed to be established. I fight this all the time, church. I'm not even preaching at you. I'm preaching at me. Speed limits? Whatever. Right? Like, there are so many things that I'm like, ah, I'm preaching at myself. And when Mike and I prayed before the service, he's like, Lord, I pray that Tim would listen to what he's preaching. Well, here's one. <clears throat> I fight this all the time because I'm an adopted son of God. I don't want to obey. But when I do, it's be not because I like it. It's because I love Jesus. So through companionship and fellowship and hardship, we see God's lordship even over governmental authority in this pro-council. Verse 17. Then the crowd there turned on Sothenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the pro-council. Wow. And Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Whatever. Sothenes the new synagogue leader, who replaced who? Crispus, after he and his entire household became followers of Jesus. Sothenes was beaten by the crowd. Now, there's a few possibilities. We don't know specifically, but there's some implications here, and I'm going to give these to you because I like to nerd out. Here are a few possibilities. We're not sure, but here's one. Possibly this was an act of anti-Semitism, sparked by Gallio essentially saying that they were wasting his time. Probably wasn't that one. Number two. 
an angry response by the Jews present because they believe Sosthenes either didn't do a good enough job pleading the case against Paul, or they believe Sosthenes was showing sympathy for the Christians. Don't know. It's probably the second one. I want to show you something real quick that makes this beating even more intriguing. Paul pens a letter to the church in Corinth. He writes first and second Corinthians. So I want you to look at first Corinthians as he begins it. Chapter one, verse one. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sophanes to the church of God in Corinth. Uh, what? Is this the same Sophanes? Probably. I'm not saying that we should start a beating ministry. <laughs> but it kind of seems like God drew Sophanes after this attack by the crowd, doesn't it? And God seems to use really hard, really weird, and really surprising ways to draw people to himself and reveal his lordship. Also, if you notice the last thing that Luke writes in this verse, at the very end he says, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. This wasn't whatever, that, that's not what that was. I think Luke was implying by stating that Gallio was not concerned with the beating of the synagogue leader, that Gallio had not become a Christian. He did not view the physical well-being of anyone as important. He had said what he said, not out of a change of heart, but because if he knew it or not, God was using him to allow the gospel to have an even more open door among the Roman Empire. Way to go, God. Because the gospel being heard and believed and received and shared was what God was doing through these apostles and the installation of the church of the living God all over Europe. So how, church, I'm done. How, church, is God showing you his lordship? Is it by your quiet time and spending more time with him in his word and prayer? Is it by what you're hearing as we're studying the scriptures and we're not, allowing, we're not skipping anything because we want the text to dictate what we're teaching? Is it through companionship? Is it through fellowship? Is it through hardship? May we be a people who understand how great God's grace is and may we be submitted under his lordship all the days of our lives. Let me pray. Uh, Father, your, uh, your scriptures are hard to teach sometimes because they preach at the preacher and they preach at anyone who wants to hear it. And so, God, there's times where I come to the text and, and I feel good about myself, and then there are times I come to the text and I just know I'm, I'm failing. And so, Lord, where I'm failing, I'm sorry. I'm sorry as an example, as one of the shepherds in this church. I'm sorry as a, as a father to five children, as a husband to Aaron, as a, as a son of the God most high. But Lord, where I'm failing, I would assume I'm not the only one, and that doesn't mean others need to do exactly what I do, but God, I just pray that you'd stir in us a want to see your lordship over every facet of our lives, and where I haven't given it up yet, where many of us in this room haven't given up pieces of our lives under your lordship, I pray by your grace and through your mercy that we'd begin to see how, God, trusting you, 
being under you, submitting to you, there's no better place. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.